In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This, he, this is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the, of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Fire and Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thanks, Lynn. Good morning, everyone. Uh, do keep that uh, open up in front of you. Um, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. There's a prayer from uh, Psalm 51, famous prayer of, of David. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Heavenly Father, that's our prayer this morning. Um, as, as we look at your word together, we pray that you would um, help us to understand it. We pray that you would help us to, to have ears that are willing to, to hear what you have to say to us. So please, Lord, help us. Uh, would you, by your spirit, show us our need for our hearts to be cleansed? And would you show us how supreme and sufficient the Lord Jesus is? In his great name we pray. Amen. Well, when a president or a king comes to make a state visit, it's a big deal, isn't it? They will send an enormous advanced team to, to prepare for their arrival in meticulous details. So for, for his king, who does God send as an advanced team to prepare the way? Well, just one man. One, frankly, pretty bizarre man called John in the wilderness. Well, there's um, three clues from Matthew in this chapter that this strange guy is not just some random weirdo, but he's actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. 
So we're just diving straight in here, no waggling on the tee. We're just getting straight on into it. We're going to see these three clues from Matthew that this strangely dressed man in the desert is fulfilling Old Testament longing and promises and prophecy. Clue number one is there in verse three. We get this quote. Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse three. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 is a turning point in that great book. Things are bleak for God's people. Babylon is is looming to swoop in and take them captive. God's people are wondering, where are you, God? Have you forgotten us? Chapter 39 promises and and looks forward to, to Babylon coming in. But then in chapter 40, we read words of comfort. Comfort my people. He's not forgotten. He's coming. And so Matthew picks up from that chapter um, this great promise of God himself coming to rescue. And Matthew wants us to see that John the Baptist is the the one promised in that chapter who's going to make the straight road for the Lord to follow on after. So that's quite a claim right from the get-go for us, isn't it, about this, this strange man in the desert. He is the one promised um, to to prepare the way for the Lord. So that's clue number one, this quote from Isaiah 40. Clue number two is his dress sense. His dress sense. Did you see how Matthew described him? John's clothes, uh, verse four, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Nice, eh? Anyone wearing any camel hair this this morning? No. At first glance, it just all seems a bit bizarre, isn't it? Who wears camel hair in the desert in a kind of... Anyway, but in the Bible, particularly with narrative in the Bible, normally speaking, you don't find details that are just added in for a bit of padding, like, like we might do. Every detail in the narrative, particularly biblical narrative, is is usually significant in some way. And believe it or not, this is true for John's dress sense here in this chapter. Listen to this description from um, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Kings 1, verse 8. They replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist, the king said. That was Elijah the Tishbite. That's what we read in, in 2 Kings 1 verse 8. Sound familiar? Yes. Well, as we, re- as we read this account in Matthew, we're to make that, that connection that this prophet in the wilderness is a lot like Elijah. But there's more. In the book of Malachi, one of the last prophecies Actually, one of the, the last verses in the whole of the Old Testament is this, Malachi 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. See, I will send the prophet Elijah. A second Elijah type of prophet is, is to come and prepare the way for the Lord's coming. That's what we read right at the end of Malachi. So do you see what Matthew's doing as he starts this um, in in chapter 3? 
drawing these things together, he's, he's showing us something about this guy dressed in camel hair in the desert. He's no ordinary guy. He, he, he's been um, prophesied and, and looked forward to from the Old Testament. So we've, uh, we've got this quote from Isaiah. We've got his dress sense echoing um, Elijah. And clue number three is, is where he is as well. Clue number three, that this is no ordinary guy, but he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, is where he is. He's in the wilderness. The prophet Elijah spent a lot of his time in the wilderness, periodically popping up to call Ahab, King Ahab, to repent. God's people, as you read through the story of the Bible, God's people spent 40 long years in the wilderness before they entered the the promised land, crossing the waters of the Jordan River as they went. The Lord met his people in the wilderness, made a covenant with them, made agreement and promises with them and delivered them into the promised land. So as we kind of put all these clues together that Matthew's held out here, we get the sense that something pretty special is is happening in these early chapters of Matthew's gospel. There's been 400 years of, of silence, longing and waiting and wondering. And here at last is this promised last prophet who will come to prepare the way of the Lord. So we need to sit up and pay attention to what this prophet has to say, to what he does. This is epoch-changing, earth-shattering. A new age is dawning here, Matthew's wanting to, to say to us. And this morning, we're going to focus on, on three things. John's ministry, John's warning, and John's Messiah. So first of all, John's ministry Um, verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So there's two elements to to his, his preaching. First of all, repent. His sermon's pretty straightforward, really. You can imagine him standing up there. Right, I've got one point for you. It's this, repent. Repentance in, in the Bible is, is not just a simple change of mind. And it's not just feeling sorry in, in some vague kind of way, although it does involve those things. When the Bible speaks of repentance, it's talking about a profound, fundamental turning around of, of mind and heart and action. Not some kind of superficial virtue signalling, but a heartfelt transformation that is backed up by actions. To notice what he said, uh, what what John said in verse 8 to these uh, Jewish leaders as they come. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not just words, not just empty words. But it's a fundamental turning around of heart mind and action and actually calling people to repent was pretty standard fare for for prophets as you as you read through the bible story that's their meat and drink repent turn back to the lord here's some 
some, uh, some verses from throughout the Bible that make that point. So in 2 Kings 17, verse 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, that I delivered you to you through my servants, the prophets. Turn from your evil ways. Or in Isaiah, Isaiah 55 verse 7, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous and the unrighteous their thoughts let them turn to the lord and he will have mercy on them and to our god for he will freely pardon psalm 34 turn from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it and then in the new testament listen to how paul describes how the church in thessalonica responded to the gospel listen to how he how he said it he talks about how the how the message rings out from them and then in verse 9 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us they tell how you turn to god from idols to serve the living and true god repentance is is right at the heart of the christian experience Martin Luther famously said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. Now I wonder, as you sit here listening to me harping on about repentance, what, what do you make of all this talk of repentance? Repentance, this kind of profound turning around, well that assumes that as humans we are fundamentally off course. And in need of, of radical change. That's, that's the assumption, isn't it, with, with repentance. Have you got to that point? Well, let me ask you, do you ever have moments when maybe you're, you're doing something like the washing up and you're just kind of staring out the window and your mind wanders to something that you did or you said that you just regret, that that you're embarrassed about, that your toes sort of curl as you kind of cringe thinking about it and you go over it in your mind. Why did I say that? Maybe at the time you, you apologised. I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't know what came over me. It... Well, the reality is whatever we said or did didn't just pop up out of nowhere. And take you by surprise. As, you, as we read through the Bible, the claim of the Bible is, is, is that those things come from, from deep within. They come from, from our hearts. The truth that the Bible wants to, to show us is, is that there is a darkness inside of us. A, a sinful nature that is utterly opposed to God and, and his ways, that's sort of hardwired into us as, as human beings. This darkness, this, this sinful nature spills out in words and actions and thoughts that cause harm to us and, and, and to others. Maybe, maybe you see that in those moments when you're sort of lying on your bed or uh, yeah maybe maybe you see that in those honest moments 
And just like those first century crowds flocking to John, we need to first see our, our desperate need of cleansing from the inside out. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that, that we need a, a power wash in our hearts. John preached repentance and, and baptised, which literally means washed, those who were confessing their sins, who'd got to that point. And he preached repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. That was the second aspect of, 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 his, of his preaching, wasn't it? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, again, as you go through the Old Testament, the predominant meaning of the kingdom of God or, or the kingdom of heaven Actually, those two phrases are, are used pretty interchangeably in, in Matthew's gospel. The predominant meaning of, of the, the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament is, is the idea of the reign of God. Not necessarily a, a, a kind of specific geographical place, but the reign of God, the, the coming reign of God. It's a big theme for Matthew, and there's deliberate ambiguity as, as he uses it. Um, as well, through, just to confuse us, uh, through through the gospel. So as you go through the gospel of, of Matthew and the other gospels as well, and 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 the New Testament, that we theologically we can say the kingdom came with Jesus and his teaching and, and his miracles. We can say the kingdom came with Jesus's death and resurrection, and we can say the kingdom will come. At the end of the age, as well as Jesus comes again. All of those are sort of true uses of this, of this phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Um, there's actually lots of books been written to try and pick out all the different bits around it. But what's important for us today, and what Matthew does as, as in these early chapters of his gospel, he links this, this new age, this this. this um, this coming reign of God in, in the world, he links that with the forgiveness of sins. He did that right in, in uh, chapter 2, in chapter with uh, the angel coming to Joseph. Uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. For Matthew... He connects this coming kingdom of God with forgiveness of sins. And so here again, John the Baptist, as he stands up to preach, as he, as he preaches this message to the crowds coming, again, he makes this connection between the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God and, and uh, um, forgiveness of sins and being the need to be cleansed for our sins. So what John is saying in a nutshell, the king is coming, get ready. The king is coming, get ready. Humble yourself, admit your need, turn from your sin. And for those who don't do that, John has, has a strong warning. 
his, 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 the second point that we're focusing on, John's warning, verses 7 to 10. Let me read from verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Strong words, isn't it, that he has for these Jewish leaders as, as, they, as they gather to, to where he's baptizing and, and, and preaching. For John, these guys are the antithesis, the polar opposite of heartfelt, genuine repentance that he's been calling the people to. As we've seen in verse 8 already, there's no fruit. There's just empty words, any repentance that's coming from these guys. They're they're puffed up in their arrogance. They they see no need to repent. God's lucky to have them on the team, is, is how they think about it. Their confidence is in their own religious observance, their, their knowledge, their pedigree, if you like. And as I've been um, thinking about a, a kind of illustration, that il- a metaphor or, or whatever that illustrates what they're like, I, I landed on the idea of, of Christmas trees. Now, around the streets near us at the moment, I don't know if this is true for, for you too, there's the sorry sight of discarded Christmas trees just lying on the curbside, waiting to be collected and burnt or whatever. There's something darkly prophetic about Christmas trees. I don't know if that's if uh, you, you resonate with, with that as well. Uh, an evangelist, um, Glenn Scrivener, has used this uh, illustration. I've nicked it from him. It is slightly bizarre, isn't it? We chop a tree down, remove it from its roots and its source of life, and we take it indoors and make it look pretty. Nice shiny things and baubles and all the rest of it. And it might look just wonderful, beautiful on the outside, but it's dead. And it's slowly decaying and maybe shedding its needles all over the floor every day for you to to, to sweep up. It's slowly decaying and, and dying. And no amount of tinsel and baubles can change the fact that it's a dead tree that you've stuck in, in your lounge. Perhaps you can see where this metaphor is going. These religious leaders on the outside look impressive, attractive, morally upstanding. But there's no life. On the inside, they are dead decaying, removed from the source of life. And they're not the only ones. Actually, that's, that's all of us, humanly speaking, isn't it? No amount of tinsel and shininess can do anything about the decay on, on the inside. And eventually the time comes for the tree to be thrown out to the curb. Have a look at verse, verse 10 of chapter 3. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's his his warning. True, genuine repentance is our only hope. 
not some sort of insincere, I'm only really sorry because I've been found out. Or I'm only really sorry because of actually now the consequences of my choices have, have caught up to me. That's why I'm sorry. Perhaps we don't need to think too hard of examples from this past week of that kind of non-apology apology. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Paul says there's, there's two types of sorrow. There's godly sorrow, which brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But there's a worldly sorrow that brings death. Godly sorrow, genuine repentance. That's what John is calling those crowds to. That's what... God's word is calling us to genuine repentance, to, to realise the real reality of our situation, to realise the, the depths of the darkness in our hearts, to realise how helpless we are. That's what we need to do. And that's what the crowds did who came to John. It's a massive losers convention. Actually, that's what happens here at 10 o'clock and 4.30 every Sunday. Do you ever think of it like that? A loser's convention. <laughs> well, we've seen um, John's ministry. We've seen John's warning. And as we finish, let's consider John's Messiah. Verse 11 and 12. And the more I study John the Baptist, the more I think he's, he is so great. Um, but that's not what he would have wanted. And that's what I, I, I love most about him is how self-deprecating self he is. There's something deeply countercultural about that. He's not wanting to make a name for himself. He's wanting to make a name for Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease, he says later on in the Gospels. Maybe we could all do with being a bit more John the Baptist. Um, particularly... Um, I, was, I was reading something earlier about um, social media. Maybe we could all be a bit more John the Baptist in the way we use our social media. Are we raising our profile or are we raising Jesus' profile in the way we, we do that kind of thing? It's quite a question, isn't it? But here, chapter 3, at the end of our passage, there's two things he wants to, to show us about the coming king he's preparing the way for. And the first... Verse 11, that Jesus, the, the coming promised king, he is the only one who can truly cleanse and purify us. So verse 11, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I can make you wet, John says. But he's the one who can truly cleanse and purify and, and, and transform you from the inside out. He's the one who can truly deal with your sin, forgive you once and for all. He's the one who can do the power wash of your heart that you so desperately need. He's the one who can truly deliver. In one sense, John's baptism had no power. He, he couldn't convert, confer any forgiveness on anybody. It's a, a sign pointing to the true and complete forgiveness offered by the Lord Jesus. 
As, as Matthew's already told us in his gospel, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the, the promised rescuer king who has, who has come to save us from our sins. He is the one who can truly cleanse and purify us. He alone. And that's what he, he longs to do. But verse 12, he is the one who is coming to judge as well. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The image is an agricultural one. His listeners would have understood. A fork would, would throw wheat and chaff up into the air and the wind would blow the lighter chaff and scatter it whilst the heavier grain would, would fall down to the floor and could be easily gathered up. The chaff would then be swept up and burned. That's the, the, the image. An unquenchable fire here is not just a metaphor, but it's the, the eternal reality facing those who don't repent and come to Jesus for forgiveness and life. He's pretty uncompromising, isn't he, John? The kingdom is near. Repent, John said, to, to, to those coming to, to, to hear him and be baptised by him. And that's what God's word is saying to us. Repent. So let me ask you, where's your confidence when it comes to salvation? To escaping that judgment? Where's your confidence? Is it on outward religious type stuff that you do or you have done in the past? Is it on your, your pedigree? A family that goes to church and has always gone to church and is that where your, your hope is found? In Christ alone. That's where our hope is found and as we finish I'm going to read the words of, of that song um, in Christ alone um, it's a well known song to, to many of us um, but let me just read them to us as we, as, we, as we finish our time in Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless babe this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man 
can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that in Jesus, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you for the free and full forgiveness and cleansing and washing and renewal that, that only he can bring about. Thank you for your amazing grace that makes that possible. There's nothing about us that deserves it or we can't do anything to earn it. By nature, we are objects of wrath. But because of the great love with which you've loved us, you offer us free and full forgiveness. Would you help us to grasp hold of that, of that great offer? Would you help us to come to our senses? Would you help us by your spirit to see how much we need you and to turn to you for that uh, pardon that, that free and full forgiveness and life eternal that you offer help us father we pray amen